0: Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning uh, we are getting into a bit of a difficult text. Uh, It's not very rosy. Uh, Jesus kind of paints a bleak picture. So, welcome. It's great to be together. Uh, We've been walking through the Gospel of John for a while, uh, and we are into the end of John chapter 15. So, if you have a Bible, you can flip there with me. Uh, A question for you. How many uh, in the room or online, you can drop it in the chat too. How many of you have heard of the organization Open Doors? Christian organization Open Doors. I got a few hands on the S's here. Uh, Open Doors is committed to, uh, on their website, it says to strengthen Christians wherever they are threatened for their faith in Jesus. It's kind of one of the, the key, I would say the key sort of persecuted church resource. Uh, there may be better, but I, I haven't found them uh, for whatever that's worth. They've got some great resources on their website to help us become aware of the issue of the persecuted church to pray for the persecuted church. They've got a a watch list, a world watch list list that's updated every year of the the places where it is hard and it costs you most to be a Christian. Uh, The latest top five is North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, where the worst persecution of Christians is happening. Uh, They report in the last year, so their last reporting year, I don't think it's quite the calendar year, but whatever that 12-month period was, that there have been over 340 million Christians living in places where they experience high levels of persecution and discrimination. Uh, They report, I don't know how they came to this number, I'm sure it can't be all of them, they report 4,761 Christians killed for their faith. 4,488 churches or Christian buildings attacked. 4,277 believers detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. And by their measure, on the planet, there are 111 countries that restrict or are hostile to Christianity. Now, I want to be careful how I say this. In Canmore, in Alberta, in Canada, in North America, we have heard lots of Christians say, we're being persecuted because I can't have a full room, because I have to wear a mask, because whatever else. Please go to the Open Doors website. We have been inconvenienced as the church 100%. There are lots of things over the last 18 months that I, I wish I didn't have to learn how to do although I love having you online. Thank you for being with us. It's great. Hi, Mom. <laughs> but there are lots of things that you know, we wish never had to happen, and yet, in the midst of us being upset about masks in smaller sizes, 4,700 Christians killed. That's more than, what, 15 a day, give or take, 12 a day. So let me encourage you to check out the Open Doors website. Uh, we had it here. There's a few different international ones. There's a Canadian one as well. Uh, check out their resources to, to pray for the persecuted church around the world. But the question that comes out of this is why are Christians around the world subject to persecution? Why does this happen? Well, in our passage today, Jesus goes after that answer. And so that's where we'll get. In the this section of the Gospel of John that we're in right now, the chapters 13 through 17, this is kind of Jesus' farewell discourse. It's his last words. Most of this are to the 11 closest disciples Judas has left already. It's his last words on the night before his crucifixion. He's preparing these 11 for what their relationship with him will look like in the future. And so much of what we've seen so far through these chapters is uh, how Jesus is forming these disciples— into this new community that will be at some point known as the church that you and I were a part of today. He's been teaching them that this new community will be recognizable by the way it loves one another. Something quite foreign in that day and frankly foreign in our day too. He's been teaching them that they will will stand apart from the world. They will look different. They will be something completely separate because of their obedience to him, to Jesus, because their lives are connected to him, modeling after the life he modeled for them, conforming to him and following Jesus' teachings. And all of this love that Jesus has for them and that is to go to one another will will flow to them and through them from God the Father and to them, through them, around them and out through them, uh, out from them through the Holy Spirit. And it will bring about, as we saw last week in uh, the beginning of chapter 15, They will experience a real, lasting, full, abundant joy. It's what we were designed to be. Branches connected to that vine was last week's message, right? But now Jesus turns his attention with these guys to how the world will view this new community. And he warns them that their future will include suffering and persecution, hatred and animosity. He says that the the world will hate the church and they will lash out at followers of Jesus. In our verses today, we're going to start at verse uh, 18 and go down to chapter 16, verse 4. We find the word hate or hatred eight times. That's a lot in a short period of time for Jesus. And we'll see Jesus explain why this will be and then help his followers face it. So that's where we're looking for today. So the question, why does the world hate Christians? I'm going to come at this from a few, point, a few different ways because Jesus does. The first is this. Uh, the world hates Christians because the world hates Jesus. And um, before we jump in here, let me, be, again, try to be really clear. So often in some of these discussions, we can set it up as, okay, we've got the world over here, we've got Christians over here, somewhere in the middle there's a battleground and it's fierce, Right? We've gotten really good in our day of setting up these us and them dichotomies. It doesn't even matter what it's about, right? We've got Oilers fans who have the best players in the, the league, best player in the world maybe, dominating those flames from down the street that, you know what, let's just put those flames right out, right? Us and them, it's important. That's an important one. We've got you know, politically us and them. We've got how we think about uh, systems, education systems, us and them, how we feel about masks, vaccine, all the things. It it all seems to just split. We've come to a place where everything ends up us versus them. And to to try to bridge that gap, well, you can't. They're they're too far gone. So when we come to this text and we see Jesus talking about his disciples and the world, we need to be really careful not to put them in those categories that we have in our day today. Oh, the world. Man, they're just horrible hopeless, they're lost, they're all these things, those bad world people. Okay, so I'm going to probably say that a couple times, but we we don't want to picture it that way. Jesus starts by saying in verse 18, if the world hates you, What, what what he's not saying here is on the off chance that you guys run into some opposition with your message in the next little bit, no, he's saying the world's going to hate you. uh, For some reason, the language softens a bit here, but we we could read when the world hates you. There's certainty implied here. It's pretty much a guarantee. Jesus, if Jesus was hated, his followers were going to be hated. And so the question is, well, if Jesus was hated, his followers will be hated. Was Jesus hated? I think we can maybe guess that answer. Only a few hours after he makes this statement, after he's spending this time with his disciples, he was arrested tried for crimes he didn't uh, commit. He was mocked, beaten, whipped, and then executed in a way that was reserved for only the worst criminals of the day. Before he was nailed to the cross, he was, he was mockingly dressed in a purple robe and given a crown of thorns. And while hanging off that cross, he was verbally and physically assaulted. Was Jesus hated? Yes, the world hated him. And so his followers will be too. What does Jesus mean by the world? And again, this is really important for us to understand. Remember, as we've been tracking through John's gospel, John has gone to great lengths to set up, uh, I just said we don't want to think in dichotomies, but John has done a great job of setting up some of these dichotomies, light versus darkness. It says Jesus is the light of the world that shines in the darkness. And one of the others is this division between being in Jesus and being in the world. There is a difference. We don't want to erase that. But even though the word here in the original language is cosmos, like uh, the, the universe hates him, that's not really what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about the physical universe will hate you if you follow me. That's not it. But instead, Jesus is talking about everyone who is living in rebellion to the creator. Which means, at some time, that's every single one of us. But people who don't yet know Jesus, who don't yet, who haven't yet been redeemed and reconciled to the Creator, we fit into that world category. Because all of us at one point or another have rejected God and trusted in our own instincts. The Bible calls this sin. And we have all embraced this anti-God, I don't need God system. And our sin has made us a part of this rebellious world, as Jesus used the terms here, which leaves us ultimately shaking our fists at the heavens, rejecting God. And so, by definition, the world hates Jesus because it stands opposed to all that God is and all that God is doing. But, but Jesus has called us out of the world. Jesus has called us to something so much more than just trying to find our way around and trying to, 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 to go our own way. He has chosen us out of the world and invited us into something so much better, relationship with him and with the Father through the Holy Spirit. As one writer said, we've been called from the ranks of rebellion into the family of God. That's a big call. And this is at the heart of the gospel. Later in his letter to the Galatians, uh, the Apostle Paul hits on this same thing. He says, but you are, you are called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom for an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. You're called to be free. Love your neighbor as yourself, he says. The whole law is fulfilled in that. Now we, you and I, we weren't called to Jesus because we were created especially special. We were called because he loves us because we were made in the image of God, and because he wants what's best for us. You and I, we haven't done anything to earn that call by our own, under our own steam. But when some people see that we're living this radical way of Jesus, when we're living it out the way that Jesus called us to, for some, their response will be hatred. D.A. Carson kind of responds to that this way. He says, former rebels, who have been by the grace of the king won back to loving allegiance with their rightful monarch, those who are called back to the kingdom, they're not likely to prove popular with those who still persist in rebellion. When Jesus calls us to him, he makes us a part of a unique people, those who have been called, chosen to be with him. Peter would later describe this called people, the church, as a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation and a people for his possession. If you uh, go back to the old King James version of that verse, that last phrase, a people for his possession, is actually translated a peculiar people. That's what we're called to be, a peculiar people. That The church is made to stand out from the world. And yet so often we have such a strong desire to fit in. This desire to have, have a seat at the table has often led, throughout history, to theological liberalism, where, where people discount or even reject some of the very core beliefs of Christianity, things that have been around since the beginning, so that we can have a seat at the table. Sometimes we hear of people who call themselves red-letter Christians, well, I read Jesus, but nothing else, which is interesting because Jesus sure read a lot of other things quoted a lot of other things, the whole Old Testament, right? And said, the whole scripture points to me. We hear of those who, uh, in churches, we're talking about not just people who don't yet know Jesus, but in churches, people who question the deity of Jesus. Well, was, was he really God? Is that really that important? Or even question whether or not he was a real physical person. It's the desire to fit in that has caused so many to reject Jesus, And if I look at my little friend group that I mostly survived high school and the beginning of university with, the desire to fit in caused many of us to reject Jesus. We need to heed Jesus' warning and call here. So many times we want to fit in, but Jesus says, I've called you out. Jesus has called us out of the world. Why? he told us last week, so we can bear much fruit. We can point people to him. Fitting in with the world is the opposite of what Jesus has called us to do. See, when we're living uh, our lives in line with Jesus, our lives will look different than the world. Again, look back at 1 Peter 2.9, right? That's that verse where the King James calls the church a peculiar people. They, we will look different But he continues to say that our uniqueness, the reason that we are a peculiar people is so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. That's a vision for your life right there. That's that's something that'll hold. That's something I can, I think, give my life to. Being called out of darkness and into not some light that we think we've discovered, but his marvelous light. One writer sums this up this way. He says, Jesus is saying in effect to his disciples and to us today, they will hate you because you're different, but you're different because I called you to be different. And your difference is what makes the gospel shine brighter. We're different because of the the fruit that's in our lives, the light that shines through us. We're different because we, we pray and obey Jesus. We love Jesus and we love others. So, why does the world hate Christians? So far we've said because the world hated Jesus or hates Jesus uh, and because we as followers of Jesus have been called out of the world. The third reason in verse 20, we see that, that we serve the one that the world hates. Good news, it's not all about us. When we follow Jesus, we look at his life. Where did his first life, a bit of a leading question, end? He ended up on a Roman cross. If we're following a crucified Savior, then we need to expect that we very well could be treated the exact same way. But here's the thing that's hopefully helpful for us. The hate that gets directed to us as Jesus' followers is actually directed through us and towards Jesus himself. Jesus tells us in the, here, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So, some of that that, that anger, that malice that's directed at Jesus' followers are actually because we follow Jesus. There's an example of this in the Old Testament. The nation of Israel, uh, before they had a king, they were led by the prophets. The prophets would hear from God and, and lead and direct the people. And there was one time when Samuel was leading the people, the people came to him and begged him to ask God for a king on their behalf. Do you remember why they asked God for a king? Everyone around us has a king. We want to be like everybody else. Some things never change, do they? So Samuel, knowing that this was not in the best interest of the people, he takes it to God and kind of says, the people want this, like, they're, really, they're, they're giving it to me for this, what do we do? And God more or less encourages him by saying, Samuel, don't take this personally. Their problem is with me, it's not with you. That's kind of where we find ourselves, too. That same encouragement. Several of of the apostles, if we look a few chapters later in Acts, in the book of Acts, they were arrested in Jerusalem for preaching about Jesus, for talking about Jesus. They were brought into the religious courtroom, and they kept talking about Jesus. And the religious leaders of the day, they wanted to kill them, but they were talked into letting these apostles go. And as we read in Acts chapter 5, and verse 40, when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak what? in the name of Jesus, and let them go. And then those apostles, verse 41, they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for Jesus' name, not for their own name. You may have heard me say this before, maybe even this morning, actually, but the important thing for us to remember here is that they were suffering dishonor for Jesus' name, not because they were jerks. Sometimes Christians feel like we're being persecuted or rejected by people around us, and, well, that might be true, but the people might actually be walking away from us just because we're jerks. We don't speak kind. We don't offer grace. We don't... All the things that Jesus did in all his interactions with the people, we see truth and grace, grace and truth. We see this put together perfectly, and sometimes we do a horrible job of that. People get mad at us, and we think, oh, I'm just you know I'm being persecuted just like the... Disciples were? Sometimes we're just jerks and we earn it. But Jesus did say in verse 20 here that people are ultimately divided into one of two camps those who persecute his disciples and those who listen and obey his word spoken by his disciples. So sometimes we are hated because we serve the one that the world hates. Fourth, uh, the world hates Christians because the world is estranged from God. We represent God, the world doesn't know God, and so they hate us for it. Verse 21, sometimes people in the church, again, we, we, we act surprised by the things we see going on in the world around us. Maybe especially today, uh, we look at, at the things that are in, in the news, that are in the culture that are coming into our school, and all these things. Like how, can, how can people think this way? How can people believe this way? Many of us grew up in a time not so long ago where, where there was at least a, a basic understanding of kind of the, the Judeo-Christian worldview and morality and values. And, but as we keep moving farther and farther from that, here in Canada and much of the West, we're surprised when people who don't follow Jesus Act in the way that a uh, contrary in to the way that Jesus taught. We're surprised that people who don't know Jesus, don't follow Jesus, have never maybe heard the real gospel. They don't act like Christians. Well, when you say it like that, I hope it makes sense. I don't act like a Muslim. I'm not. I don't follow those things. I don't believe in that. I don't know the teachings. I, you know, I could piece some things together, but I, so I don't act that way. So why do we expect the world around us to live like Christians when they have completely? rejected God, when they are estranged from God. Does that make sense? We can't can't put that standard on a people who don't even know the the standard-bearer. When the systems around us aren't operating on the foundation of Jesus, it's no wonder people follow or chase other things, and this makes it all the more important for us to live out the teachings of Jesus, not just to as we talked about prayer uh, and reading the word, take it put it in here and then stop but it's got to come in and through us to the world around us. We've got to live it out so that people might see that Jesus has also called them to something more and the Holy Spirit might work in their lives to draw them to something more. Again, living differently may also lead people to reject us as they reject our message, which is a rejection of Jesus, and verse 21 tells us is a rejection of the Creator God as well. Finally, and maybe most most significantly, this is the one that sort of resonated most with me. The world hates Christians because we represent Jesus. The world hates Jesus because Jesus exposes the world's guilt. This is really a theme, I think, throughout the gospel. Jesus does a lot of things, but he takes a lot of flack for calling people to something. He came as you read in the prologue in those first verses of John that, that Jesus was God, the word was with God and he was God and he came to heaven. He put on flesh and he walked among us. He moved into the neighborhood as, as Eugene Peterson's The Message says. He did amazing things. We read throughout John that, that he spoke like no one had ever spoken before. He talked with authority like none of the religious leaders had authority yet. He did miracles that no one had ever done before or maybe even since. Yet people hated him. Now, normally, we hate people who speak or act in mean or evil or untruthful or arrogant ways, but Jesus was none of those things. But they hated him. But here's what he was. Look at John 1, verse 4. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness could never extinguish it. And then down in chapter 3, verse 19, God's light, Jesus, came into the world, but the people love the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it, for fear their sins will be exposed. That's what he's talking about right here. When Jesus came and still comes into our lives, he comes with this light that shines like a clear day, high noon, into all the darkest, dingiest, grimiest, dirtiest corners of our lives. He lights those things up. He exposes our sin, which results in one of two responses. Either we surrender that thing to him to deal with, or we hate him for exposing the mess that we've worked so hard to hide from everyone else around us. One commentary used this illustration. I think it's really helpful. Years ago, at the time of the opening up of inland Africa by missionaries, the wife of an African chief happened uh, to visit a mission station. And at this station, the missionary had hung a, hung a little mirror up on a tree outside his home, and the woman happened to glance into it. Now, she had come straight out of her pagan environment, and she'd never seen the, the hideous paintings on her face or her hardened features. And now she looked in the mirror, she gazed at her own face, and she was startled. And she asked the missionary, who is that horrible person inside the tree? The missionary said, it's not the tree. The glass is reflecting your own face. And she couldn't believe it until she was holding the mirror in her hands. And when she understood, she said to the missionary, I must have this glass. How much will you sell it for? The missionary didn't want to sell his mirror, but she insisted so strongly that he thought it would be better to sell her the mirror than to... uh, Avoid that they have a conflict with her coming out of that. And so the price was set, and she took the, gloss, the glass, and fiercely she said, I will never have this thing making faces at me again. And she threw it down and broke it into pieces. Just like that woman broke the mirror so she wouldn't have to see her reflection any longer, in the same way people can lash out at Christians, and ultimately at Jesus, because they don't want to see that any longer, because Jesus lights up and reveals their guilty consciences. But you know what we, as the church, are called to do? Jesus is gonna light up consciences. That's what he does, he's gonna do it in us, he's gonna do it in everyone, That light is gonna shine. But we, as his followers, are called to love people. Love people like Jesus loves us. I pray that I will never forget all the mess and the sin that Jesus has carried me through and out of, all the day-by-day dirt and grime that's still in my life, that I'll never forget that that who I was, and and more importantly, who I am, is only because of God's grace. Paul wrote, whatever I am now, it's all because God poured out his special favor, poured out his grace on me. When we forget that, we start to hold people to an unrealistic... Standard, don't we? And so we strive to respond in grace when Jesus lights up the guilty consciences around us, and we say with Jesus, "Father, forgive them." We don't know; they don't know what they're doing. And we pray and we intercede that the Holy Spirit might grab hearts and call more people and more people to Himself. When I was um, walking down this morning, I was listening to a podcast, and the the interviewee was was talking about how we view the world, and he's, he's from New York City. He said, I can, I can walk through the streets of New York and I can see some of the finest art in the world. And it, it can be, a, it can be a, a secular artist, but I can look and, man, that is the, the beauty that, that God gives all of us, the ability to do these things. And then I can see uh, an addict shooting heroin in the na- same, same street, right? And he says, we cannot look at the beauty of God without looking at, at everything else and saying, this this person is still created in the image of god it, it's not that, that we've come out of the world and now we sit in judgment of it that's not our job our job is to, to respond in grace to look at the world and s- strive to see the world as jesus sees every single person as image bearers as children so what do we do all with this with all this how do we respond to the world's hatred first and maybe most importantly, Jesus says, don't stop telling people about Jesus. I don't know about you, but I can definitely struggle with this. I've maybe talked with Jesus a couple times and my neighbors know what I do, my, my, my siblings know what I do, all these sorts of things, but they know I'm a pastor, they know I, you know I follow this Jesus guy. Maybe I haven't been like flat out rejected or kicked out of a family or kicked off the block, praise the Lord, um, or, or hated, but maybe just shrugged off. And it gets really easy to just say, well, I tried, and kind of give up. But Jesus promises in these verses that as we testify about him, as we tell our stories, as we, as we tell of the work he's done in us, he will send the Holy Spirit, the advocate, remember we defined the advocate as one who stands next to us in court, it's a legal term, who gives steel to our spine. He'll send the Spirit of truth who will come from the Father and enable us and help our testifying. There's a beautiful thing. There's, there's a lot of, you know, in our, our day, there's a lot of questions about what is truth and who is truth and how do we define truth. One of the things that comes out of that is people can't argue with your story. You can't, you can't hear my story and say, well, that's, that's not right. We can argue about all sorts of apologetic issues of the historicity of the Bible and all these things, and there's, we can come at that, but this is what happened. This is what Jesus did. This is how he's working in my life. This is what's coming out of it. You can't really argue with that. And so the promise here is the promise of the Holy Spirit to be with us, and the promise of his empowering us to witness about Jesus, and help us to speak truth. And when we tell the truth, we need to be honest about sin, we need to talk about grace and truth together. We all often, maybe always, but often face the the temptation to minimize sin, to, to downplay the difference between following Jesus or not following Jesus. But these temptations come out of our desire to be loved instead of rejected. Matt Carter healthfully writes, if we're not honest about sin, then we cannot impress upon people the need for a savior, which is a really fascinating statement about kind of the future of the church. If we start saying less and less is actually sin, and we kind of whitewash sin, then what's the point? Why do we have Jesus on a cross if he didn't have to die for something? We can't lose that. He but honesty about sins begins by being honest with our own sins. The church hasn't always been good at that. It's not always difficult to tell the truth about someone else's sin, but it's far more difficult to be truthful about our own. And so the Holy Spirit can help our witness about our own need of salvation. We can't act as if we have it all together, we've got it all figured out. Instead, we need to be honest about our brokenness, our weakness, and failure. And then we can talk honestly about our own desperate need for Christ, bearing witness about his great work in us. And if we approach people while unwilling to open up about our own need for salvation, then our words will seem like nothing more than arrogant, hypocritical condemnation. Listen, nobody likes rejection. Nobody, I don't think, none of us actively seek it out. Boy, I sure hope someone can and put me down on the way home. That's, that would really make my day. But when it comes to tell others about Jesus, we need to learn that it's worth the risk. As we said, we do it with grace and truth, through relationship and hospitality where we can. Finally, the last way that, that we respond to the world's hatred, chapter 16, we don't fall away. We cling to the truth and we hang on to the truth no matter how severe it gets. We've just said that we don't want to soften sin to make it more palatable to people. Well, Jesus doesn't soften what's coming for these guys in this text either. He warns the disciples and us to be ready. He says in 16 verse 1, I've told you these things so that you won't abandon your faith. Things you're going to get hard. Hang on. In verse 4, I'm telling you these things now so that when they happen, you'll remember my warning. He's teaching his disciples, and I think he, this should be teaching us too, that, that when they hit opposition, when they are hated, they won't be surprised by this. And look at the consequences Jesus lists in verse 2. They, You'll be kicked out of the synagogue, and those who kill you will think they're working for God. That's pretty severe. This is uh, pretty much the opposite of some of the things we hear in some prosperity gospel-type churches today. If, you're, if you give your heart to Jesus... Everything's going to turn up all aces. Roses will come up. All the things, right? But Jesus says, no. They will hate you. You'll be kicked out of the synagogue. And when they kill you, they'll think they're doing the right thing. The synagogue, for them, was the heart of everything. It was the heart of the community, it was the religious hub, it was the social hub, it was, a, it was an economic hub, everything centered around synagogues. So to be kicked out of the synagogue was like losing your entire identity. I read that uh, you'd be seen as an outcast, and they may even, if you, if you were thrown out of synagogue, those who were left might actually throw you a funeral because you're dead to them. Like that, how'd you like to walk down the street and see your funeral happen because you've been kicked out of synagogue? That's what Jesus is saying, this, this could happen. Here's the thing. We started talking about open doors and the cost of following Jesus. And In the time we've preached, statistically, there have been however many arrested, killed for their faith. The cost of following Jesus has always been high. And it still is. In our, our current climate, it, things are heating up here in the West in ways that it hasn't ever before but Jesus promises to be with us. Now I think we can make the, well, the mistake this morning of walking out and being downcast because this is a hard text, and it is a hard text. It's not, if you're visiting for the first time, <laughs> we try not to land here every week. We've got to keep in mind all the other verses that are around this one, right? Everything Jesus has said and done. I'm the vine you're the branches live in me and when we we live in unity like the branch on the vine my level flow into you and the love from the father will flow into you and your level flow into me and and you'll have abundant joy that's what we're called to following him is worth it it's worth it all remember what he said in chapter 14 will leave us with this do not let your hearts be troubled i suspect Again, this passage is one big, long, it's the longest teaching section we have of Jesus from 13 to 17. I hope and suspect that, that these words are still ringing in the disciples' ears as Jesus says, oh, and by the way, I'm going. Oh, and by the way, uh, I'll come back. Oh, and by the way, oh, and by the way, by the way, they will kill you. But do not let your hearts be troubled. Keep trusting in God and trust also in me. Let me pray. Jesus, uh, we do want to thank you even for the hard texts. The ones that, that can, can seem really heavy heavy, and, and burdening and just not nice. But remind us of, of the gospel in them, that you have called us out. Have, we, we are a called people, a peculiar people. That you are doing something in and through us We've been called to, to bear fruit, to shine your light to the world around us, to call more people out. This is, this is what you've been up to since the beginning. So I pray that as we, as we wrestle with these things and, and the, the, the animosity and, and hatred from the world towards those of us who follow you, to those who follow you, may your words, Jesus, ring in our hearts. Do not be troubled. Trust in me. Trust in God. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Keep trusting God. Keep trusting in me. And we pray this in Jesus' good, good name. Amen. Would you guys come?